Pearl Church exists to express a sacred story and to extend a common table that animate life by love. A primary expression of our sacred story is the weekly sermon. If our sermons inspire you to ponder the sacred, to consider the mystery and love of God, and to live bountifully, would you consider supporting our work? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org, or follow the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story. God of our ancestors, parent, grandparent, and great-grandparent of us all, we ask that you help us love ourselves, love our stories and our family's stories, which are our own. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning. For those of you whom I haven't met, my name is Constantino Kalev, and I serve as one of the members of Pearl's oversight team. I have not been here much lately on Sundays, and I love that Pearl is a community where I feel no guilt about that. My husband David and I have been living out our faith in other ways and have been devoting our Sunday mornings to other activities. But we both still deeply love this church. And as a member of the board, I continue to be deeply involved, even if it's behind the scenes. But because Pearl is also the kind of church where we don't like curtains, it is our tradition to devote time every year to pull back the curtains and let everybody see behind the scenes by having us, the members of the oversight team, come up here and share with you about who we are and about our dreams and hopes for the church. Kerry started out the series, then we heard from Sherry. Last week, it was Rachel's turn, and today, it's me. Next week, we will welcome back Mike from his sabbatical, and he will share with us in his double role as lead pastor and fifth member of the oversight team. Today, I will share with you the stories of two women who never knew each other and who were not related, but whose stories eventually intersected, creating a third, my own. We will start with the story of this woman. Her name was Teresa Paola Albora. She was also known as La Marquesa di Sinibaldi, the Marchioness of Sinibaldi. Teresa was born in 1783 to an aristocratic family of Genova, an independent city-state in what is now northern Italy. In 1803, at the age of 19, she married a fellow aristocrat named Niccolo, Marquess of Sinibaldi. His family's land was in Lazio, closer to Rome, on the northern edge of what was then the Kingdom of Naples. In 1808, five years after their marriage, Naples fell to the conquering armies of the French Emperor Napoleon Bonaparte. And as a result, a man named Johann Murat who was crowned, was crowned king of Naples. By pure coincidence, I'm sure, he happened to be Napoleon's brother-in-law, which made his sister, Caroline Bonaparte, the queen of Naples. The new king wanted to keep the local nobles close, so the Marquess and Marchioness of Sinibaldi, Niccolo and Teresa, went to Naples to live at court. Turns out that Teresa, was the same age as Queen Caroline, 
so they quickly became friends and confidants. Interesting life, right? Well, that was just the beginning. At court, the Marchioness Teresa met a man, well, she was by then the mother of three children, she met a man named Nicolas Louis Raoul. He was a general in Napoleon's army who was wounded at Waterloo and had escaped to Naples seeking refuge. Nicolas, the adventurous and passionate French soldier, was evidently more to Teresa's liking than Niccolo, the Italian Marquis she had <coughs> married. I don't know if she fell in love with him, but she definitely started having sex with him. And if family lore is to be believed, the affair was encouraged by Queen Caroline herself, who quipped Dan that in choosing a new bedmate, it is smart to choose one with the same name as one's husband. Nicolas Nicolo, it's the same name, just different language. Here, Teresa's story takes a turn you would never expect, taking her from the lavish courts of Europe to the marshlands of central Alabama. It turns out that upon Napoleon's fi final defeat, a group of his former soldiers struck a deal with the US government where they were granted asylum in the US and were given some land in Alabama to establish a settlement. Teresa's lover decided to join his comrades and it was at that moment that she made the biggest and the first truly autonomous decision of her life. She ran away from her husband, smuggling her three children out of the Palazzo Reale, which you can still visit in Naples, and sailed to the United States with her sexy French general. <laughs> but what do a bunch of French military men know about agriculture and frontier life in the Deep South, nothing. Back in Europe, they had baptized their future settlement as the vine and olive colony because they thought that they would grow grapevines and olives in a swamp. Their plan was doomed to fail, and it did. So Teresa's lover, Nicolas, decided to go back to doing what he did best, command military campaigns. He became a mercenary fighting for the different factions that were waging independence wars in South and Central America. Teresa had no interest in staying in Alabama, so she and her three children went with him. They eventually landed in Guatemala, where Teresa quickly connected with the ruling Spanish elites. Her oldest daughter, Zoe, was by then of marrying age, and a wealthy Spaniard, who was also of aristocratic French and Italian descent, was smitten by her beauty. Teresa gave her daughter the choice of marrying him, and she did. They lived a long and happy life together. My grandfather was their great-grandson. The government of France eventually pardoned the Napoleonists, and Teresa's lover went back to Europe. She, however, stayed in Guatemala. The choice she had made in Naples had been about more than running off with a lover. It had been about living life on her own terms. The life she found in the beautiful colonial city of Antigua, Guatemala, was far from the luxury of her youth, no doubt, but it was also a very far cry from the ruggedness she had found in North America. Most importantly, it was a life that she had chosen. 
She lived it all, and by all accounts, with no regrets. So that's one story. Now, let me tell you about Apolline Laurence del Betz, whom we see here in this photograph. She was born in 1860 in the town of Colombe, which is now a suburb of Paris. Her father was the rebellious son of a prominent military family from Dordogne in southwestern France, who instead of joining the army, moved to the capital seeking love and art. Her mother was the daughter of a well-to-do bourgeois co couple from the capital. Theirs was a great love affair that left Apolline orphaned when she was only 10 years old. Her mother died of what was probably some kind of cancer, and that threw her father into such a mental breakdown that he died less than 10 months later in a psychiatric hospital. Upon their death, Apolline then went to live with her older sister, who was already married. She spent the rest of her childhood and adolescence at their house in the 9th arrondissement of Paris, near the Palais Garnet, home of the Paris Opera, which she witnessed being built. She lived through the siege of Paris during the Franco-Prussian War of 1880 and 1871, 1870 and 1871. And later in life, she regaled her grandchildren with the stories of the exotic meats that she got to taste during the siege. Camel, elephant, antilope. The former residents of the zoological garden at the Jardin de Plantes, who were sacrificed when other sources of food were exhausted in the city. When her grandfather died, he left her what would have been her share of her mother's inheritance, and her uncles were appointed guardians. At that point, one could have said that Apolline had a charmed and enviable life ahead of her. She was a pretty and well-to-do young woman living in the most beautiful city in the world. But that wasn't what she wanted. At 21, she met a bank clerk two years her, senior, her junior named Maxime. He had grown up in the first arrondissement, and during the siege, he had not eaten antilope and elephant, but mice and rats. His father was a tailor born in Brussels, and his mother a Parisian seamstress. They were the kind of people who did not bother to get married until Maxime was almost six years old. He owed his education to the public schools of the Third French Republic, while Apolline had been educated at home by tutors and a governess. But they fell in love, and soon, Apolline found herself pregnant out of wedlock. Her uncles, whether it was out of piety or greed, I'm not sure, proceeded to disinherit her and kept what her grandfather had left her for themselves and for their children. Unlike Maxime's parents, he and Apolline did get married at least a couple of months before the birth of their first daughter, and their marriage certificate already lists her occupation as laundress. In a matter of months, she had gone from having servants to washing other people's clothes. But she was happy. Apolline gave birth to two more daughters in Paris in the 1880s, including my great-grandmother, Jeanne Berthe. They lived in the 7th arrondissement, 
just three blocks from the Champ de Mars, where the Eiffel Tower was being built. In 1886, she and Maxime emigrated to Argentina. In Buenos Aires, she gave birth to a fourth daughter. But that adventure did not last. Maxime's mother got sick, and they decided to return to France to be with her. Back home, Apolline gave birth to a fifth child, their first son. Then, in, 19, in 1893, the bug for adventure in the new world bit them again. Apolline saw an ad in a newspaper advertising all kinds of money. Today, we would call them incentive bonuses for European immigrants willing to move to Guatemala. And soon, she and Maxim were on a ship once again. They settled in a small town on the southern coast of Guatemala, where Maxim established an accounting practice to serve the rich landowners of the region. Apolline gave birth to two more sons in that town. But whether it was due to the tropical climate, the language barrier, or some other reason that we'll never know, Maxim floundered in Guatemala. He became an alcoholic, and he died at the young age of 46. At 48, Apolline was, was left widowed in a foreign country with three boys still at home. One of her daughters had died, and the other three had already married. She found work as a housekeeper and as a governess for the children of a wealthy Guatemalan doctor and did her best to get by. She died of leukemia nine years later at the age of 57. She lived a difficult life, but an adventurous life. She sailed across the Atlantic four times before the turn of the 20th century. She gave birth in three countries. She lived through war and saw some of the world's most famous landmarks being built. Above all, she lived life on her own terms, no matter how high the price. I have always admired Apolline and Teresa. But why share their stories with you? Because their stories are my own. Their stories became one on this day, May 16, 1964. That was the day when their great-granddaughter and great-great-great-grandson, my parents, married each other. <sighs> Teresa and Apolline are more than an inspiration for me. They are me. My blood is their blood. My passions are their passions. My stubborn determination to do always as I please and only as I please, no matter the cost, is theirs as well. I have never been a good team player and frankly have no interest in being one. <laughs> this trait, or the lack of it, has often been a hindrance to me, especially in terms of my career. In the face of this, I could live constantly frustrated with myself. Or I could accept that I am what I am. I am who they were. Like them, I, too, have walked away from family, from partners, and from lovers in order to live life on my own terms, 
in order to live the life I choose to live. And like them, I have faced the consequences head on. There have been times when I have made choices that even I don't understand, and they have cost me dearly. Some of my choices have brought me very dark days. And in those low times, thinking of them and the choices they made, choices that would have seemed irrational to everyone around them, choices that some would even say ruined their lives, gives me the grace to forgive myself. And that is the biggest value I see in knowing my roots. Knowing not just where I came from, but who I came from, helps me understand myself better, helps me love myself better. Genealogy, the knowledge of who your ancestors were, is an important part of self-growth and self-integration. I believe that that is why the Bible, as evidenced by today's readings, gives importance to it. We hear in the, the Old Testament that God, God loves all his children to the thousandth generation, and surely even beyond. We learn that the iniquities, let's call them vices of, or character flaws of a parent, are passed down to their children and to their children's children for many generations. I have no doubt that their virtues are passed down as well. In the New Testament, we find multiple pages devoted to simply outlining Jesus' genealogy. Most people, I think, don't know what to do with that, other than just skim through it and skip a bunch of verses like I did when I was doing the reading. But you see, there is more than just names in that long list. There are stories, many of which are familiar even to us 2,000 years later because they are told in the very same Bible. Jesus did not just come out of nowhere. Jesus was the product of his ancestors' stories. And to understand him, we must understand Ruth. We must understand Bathsheba. We must understand David, the son of Jesse. Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham. Adam, the son of God. Now, I'm not American, and I never will be. But I have lived in this country for more than 20 years, and even became a US citizen some years back. I've dedicated my time in this country to studying it. Literally, my bachelor's degree is in American studies. And one theory I have developed in my time here is that being disconnected from one's roots and one's ancestors, like so many Americans are, leaves an invisible hole in one's self that becomes an obstacle to true self-love. The American Protestant Church, with its emphasis on being born again, on erasing everything that came before that one moment when the person accepts Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, has only exacerbated the problem. And that is why, as we all continue to deconstruct and reconstruct our faith here at Pearl, one of my dreams for our church is that it can be a place where all of you feel safe enough, loved enough, to remember that, like Jesus, you did not spawn out of nowhere, and that everything that came before you was not erased when you said a prayer. I want to encourage you all to learn to love yourselves more fully 
by learning about your past, by loving your past, by forgiving your past, and understanding your past, even the past that came before you were born. Please pray with me. God of our ancestors, lead us to them. Lead us to their love and to their redemption, that in learning to understand them, we may better understand ourselves. Amen. We hope that this sermon inspired you to ponder the sacred, to consider the mystery and love of God, and to live bountifully. If you don't already support our work, will you begin today? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org, or follow the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story.